0: This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I am joined today by uh, Dr. Phil Magnus. Dr. Magnus is the Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. Phil, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So Phil, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you became an economic historian. Like we hear a lot about economists and historians, but it's an interesting intersection.
1: Right, it's an almost inherently interdisciplinary area of study. And I I, I never really intended, uh, you know, if you would have asked me 20 years ago what I wanted to do for a career, I thought I was going to be working in uh, in trade policy, so which I studied as an undergrad. I uh, had uh, done some uh, graduate work toward that when I was getting my master's degree, and thought I was going to end up working on like Capitol Hill or something very similar. But uh, I, you know, became uh, frustrated and a bit disillusioned by the nature of the political uh, system. Uh, you know, I thought I was going in to work on trade policy, found it, it was dominated by lawyers rather than economists. So I switched gear and just started studying uh, uh, more the intellectual side of the, uh, the history and tradition of, uh, of trade. And that led, uh, you know, one, one, one thing led to another and ended up writing a dissertation about uh, the history of tariffs in the 19th and early 20th century United States. Uh, so that essentially got me into the field of economic history. Uh, looking at events from the past, because I found out, uh, you know, conveniently enough, politicians uh, from the past are all uh, deceased and no longer with us. They uh, uh, leave records behind, but they aren't really there to uh, distort the political argument with their own input.
0: So you've done a lot of work on the uh, 1619 Project. Could you talk a little bit about what it is and kind of the ins and outs of the project?
1: Yeah, so the uh, the 1619 project was launched in August of 2019 as a New York Times magazine feature, and it was uh, intended to basically resituate our understanding of American history around the institution and legacies of slavery, which uh, I think is overall an admirable project. The goal it's a necessary part of American history that we need to discuss. Um, so. It took its name from uh, the year 1619, which is the, uh, the, the, the first slave ship that arrived off of the coast of Jamestown, Virginia. Uh, and uh, they try to use that as a, an origin date uh, to supplant some other more conventional uh, historical dates. We know of the, uh, the Mayflower arriving uh, a year later, we know of 1776, but 1619 has been uh, somewhat overlooked as a, a, a point, a turning point in American history. So the aim of the project was to, uh, to basically resituate the narrative around the succession of events that come from the uh, arrival of slaves in uh, what becomes the United States. Um, admirable project, uh, it fills a historical gap, uh, but it also immediately came under criticism, quite a bit of which I, I offered myself and tend to agree with, that saw taking this historical narrative, uh, including the corrective elements of it, and turning it in a really heavily political, ideological direction. In other words, using the past 400 years to uh, advocate for a lot of things that look like they were more pertinent to the uh, 2020 presidential election than uh, uh, a a fuller understanding of slavery in the world. So uh, it, it kind of pivots between historical uh, context that it's trying to provide, but also modern day political advocacy. And I think that political advocacy element is what rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, uh, including drawing some of the criticisms that it has received. Uh, Nonetheless, the project seems to be going very strong still. It just won a uh, Pulitzer Prize a couple of weeks ago and uh, is sponsored a whole succession of additional material out of the New York Times. So uh, it's very much a live debate at the moment.
0: There's a lot going on in the 1619 project. So, um, my next question is what you think is right about it and so there's a lot to talk about, but maybe just giving us a couple of examples of what you think the 1619 project got right.
1: So, I think the uh, the strength of the project is its overall uh, narrative arc of trying to resituate slavery as this uh, this great American problem, uh, this uh, horrific institution that has historical legacies extending, uh, you know, more than 150 years beyond its official abolition. In doing so, it's trying to give a, a, a voice to an element of American history that sometimes is treated very superficially. So you take your, your K through 12 textbooks or even some college textbooks. Uh, yes, they all clearly talk about slavery, but it's a very simplistic, straightforward political narrative uh, that uh, mentions the arrival of this institution, uh, talks about the horrors of the plantation system, and then, in 1865, the 13th Amendment passes and it goes away after the Civil War. So it's a uh, uh, almost a cookie cutter version of the history of slavery. Um, what the 1619 Project did, and I think admirably so, was trying to dig deeper into the context of, uh, of the events that led, led to both its abolition and then some of the, uh, the, the lasting economic, political, and social legacies that we have today. So uh, uh, for example, the long shadow of the Jim Crow era certainly is uh, extends into the lifetime of many people that are still living today, uh, and I, I think the project itself aims to uh, uh, to give greater voice to that narrative as a, uh, a matter of historical complexity. Uh, the question then is is where does it go astray from that, and that gets into some of the criticisms that I offer.
0: Uh, could you give us a few of those criticisms? Absolutely. So. Um, the main point
1: uh, where I went into the 1619 Project Debate concerned an article by uh, Matthew Desmond, who's a uh, sociologist at Princeton University that was recruited uh, as a, uh, one of the major feature article contributors to the 1619 Project. And what Desmond attempts to argue is that the history of capitalism, uh, American capitalism, over basically the past 200 years, uh, is imbued with and tied intrinsically to the institution of slavery. And what he essentially does is he goes back historically and notes that uh, uh, cotton production, plantation production was a part of the historical American economy and tries to draw like a a genetic claim, a a, a genealogical lineage from plantation accounting books to uh, one example he uses Microsoft Excel spreadsheets today. And the gist of his argument is that capitalism today is tainted by infused with uh, an inheritor of the violence of the plantation slavery system. And because of that, we can start to uh, go through and delineate all the things that he finds problematic with uh, the economy today, which also tends to coincide with his own uh, political perspectives. It's very kind of a uh, left-progressive uh, type of an economic ideology, and he attributes that to uh, the supposed claim that slavery is, uh, is at the root of all American capitalism. So uh, one of the critiques I offered was to dig into some of the history of this, and I find really quickly that Desmond uh, commits several uh, basic factual errors early on. Uh, first, he, he vastly overstates the uh, size and economic significance of the uh, cotton plantation economy, uh, and the second is he draws upon a, uh, uh, an academic literature, uh, it's referred to as the New History of Capitalism, uh, which are a series of studies of slavery that have emerged in about the past 10 years. Uh, but he draws upon that literature uh, rather uncritically, uh, almost uh, repeats several of its, uh, its claims at face value without acknowledging that that literature itself has come under some pretty heavy criticism by both historians and economists, for uh, misuse and distortion of uh, several of its factual claims. So that's really where I entered into the debate. Then of course, it, it expands to other areas of the project. So uh, several historians critiqued it uh, around one of its most notable claims, which was that uh, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the editor of the whole series, wrote a lead essay in which she said that the American Revolution uh, in 1776 was uh, driven heavily, if not primarily, by a desire to protect slavery from the British Empire. Uh, and this turns out to be a very fringe suspect type of a claim, at least with the strength that she assigned to it. Uh, she's basically saying that the American Revolution was, uh, was fought in defense of slavery. And what it ends up being, if you start digging into some of the evidence behind her claims, is she's misread and miscontextualized certain events during the revolution. In particular, there was a, uh, uh, the British governor of Virginia uh, Lord Dunmore, in 70, late 1775, he offered freedom to slaves that would join the uh, the loyalist side of his uh, his military, his army, to put down the uh, revolting colonists. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, a true historical factual event. But it turns out that uh, the 1619 Project's narrative vastly overstates the role of this and conveniently omits certain uh, nuances and characteristics, uh, I'd say foremost of, among them being that uh, this order was only extended to the slaves of, uh, of colonists that were on the rebel side, that were on the, uh, uh, the, the American side. It had uh, a big clause that exempted any Loyalist slave owner and Loyalist plantation owners from even being eligible to this. Uh, So that's coming under a lot of criticism. And you see little factual claims like that uh, throughout the project that I think are more suspect and were given very heavy weight just because they propped up its political narrative, uh, but they haven't uh, held up very well under scrutiny.
0: As I understand it, uh, there are parallels to the arguments made by the new capitalists and the people in the 1619 project with regard to cotton as being a big part of the economy and folks who defended slavery back in the day. What is the connection there? And is this connection lost on folks today working on this topic?
1: Yeah, I think this is a, uh, one of the oddities of the new history of capitalism literature, as well as the 1619 project is its view of slavery's central supremacy uh, to the American economy before the, and uh, if you go into some of the academic literature, including stuff, the 1619 project uh, drew upon, there's a book called uh, the half has never been told. And it's by um, Edward Baptist, a, uh, historian at Cornell University. And this book's actually become somewhat notorious among economists and economic historians because it, it contains this ostentatious uh, statistical claim about the size of cotton in the antebellum economy. Uh, and What Baptist attempts to do is he purports to add up all the different components of uh, cotton-based production and its extension into other industries and to a number where uh, he says cotton plantation accounts for of the GDP of the United States prior to the Civil War. Uh, This is actually an absurd claim. If if you actually know the literature of of, uh, the the cotton plantation system and the the amount of uh, economic activity derived from it, it was more in the neighborhood of about five to 6%. So it's a tenfold increase that he's uh, assigned to uh, the value and significance of cotton in the American economy. And then he steps from that basically to saying, well, cotton was uh, the preeminent driver of economic activity based on this false and phony statistic he's come up with. Uh, therefore, all of capitalism's tainted by cotton. Uh, the issue here is that this is actually an argument with some historical parallel. On the eve of the Civil War, several Southern senators and politicians, uh, they picked up an argument that was being put forth by this uh, political economist and journalist by the name of David Christie, Uh, in the late 1850s, he wrote a book, and uh, the book's thesis was basically that cotton is king of the world economy. Uh, Cotton is such a central component of production that anything and everything economically could be tied to it in such a way that if you uh, destroyed the cotton economy, you would see utter, not only national collapse, but international ruin, depression, uh, uh, just major economic calamities rippling across the world. And the Southerners, of course, love this because they can say, wait a minute, our plantation system based on slavery is so essential to the national and global economies that if you do anything to try to disrupt it, i.e. you try to free the slaves, uh, you take away some of the protections that uh, slavery had enjoyed under the law, you're threatening the economy of the world and this became known as King Cotton Theory. So uh, uh, James Henry Hammond, a a senator from South Carolina gave a famous speech where he goes on the floor of the Senate and he declares uh, that cotton is king and cotton waves his scepter across the world economy. If you make war upon cotton, you make war upon slavery, you destroy the world economy. Uh, So that was the gist of the argument on the eve of the Civil War. And in a weird way, the new history of capitalism, including the 1619 Project literature today, has basically accepted this economic claim as true minus the pro-slavery spin that's attached at the end. So they're almost unwittingly rehabilitating this old argument from uh, the late 1850s uh, about the primacy of cotton and the economy. Problem with that, in addition to the stats that I mentioned, is that this, this claim was actually more rooted in propaganda than truth. And the biggest tell, the biggest reveal that we have of that is the Civil War itself. So the Confederacy secedes in 1861. They built their entire diplomatic strategy with trying to get European recognition, trying to draw other powers into the war on their side, on this philosophy, this theory of King Cotton. Uh, They they said that basically we're we're going it alone as a cotton-producing nation, an export-based nation but we're going to uh, use that to our advantage to try and lure and entice Britain and France and all the other European powers to do business with us and, and they're hopefully, therefore hopefully support us in the war. <laughs> so what we know of King Cotton uh, diplomacy, as it was turned, the, the, the term ended up being, it was an utter failure. Uh, so over the course of, uh, of four and a half years, basically uh, Confederacy, Confederacy was fighting for its existence. The European powers responded to neither the carrot nor the stick of preferential treatment and access to cotton. Uh, they didn't come to the Confederacy's aid. And in fact, when the flow of cotton from the South is cut off both by intentional Confederate policy and then the Union blockade, what does Britain do? They go to other countries, other, other regions to source their cotton. They go to Europe, or, or they go from Europe to, uh, to Egypt, to India, to the Caribbean. And it's almost a a seamless transition after just a a very brief period of economic disruption uh, in the textile mill industry. But uh, uh, you you have a clear substitution effect away from uh, the plantation system in the United States when it's cut off. That basically reveals that King Cotton was basically a pretender to the economic throne. There really wasn't uh, much of a a heft to this argument that had been presented. So King Cotton diplomacy fails with the Civil War. It basically debunks the King Cotton argument until really about 10 years ago when it's unwittingly rediscovered and rehabilitated by uh, these new historians of capitalism in ways that have come up with uh, some really uh, strange results and been adapted to this narrative.
0: Uh, returning to uh, to something you said, uh, the stat you gave me, that the um, the King Cotton argument that, or I, I don't know if it was the King Cotton argument or, or someone in a contemporary.
1: Yes, uh, probably Ed Baptist.
0: Yeah, the, uh, the, the 50% of the economy, the United States economy pre-Civil War was based in cotton. Uh, if someone said that to me today, I would sort of puzzle, like, wouldn't that, wouldn't we then expect if that were true, uh, that the economy of the United States would drop like a, like a rock off a cliff, right after you, you free slaves, and
1: right, <laughs> right. And if anything, it actually takes off. What what we see going on in the Civil War is uh, not only internationally a a, a a rebuttal of the King Cotton argument, but what wins the the, uh, the, the war for the uh, the Northern states is really their industrial supremacy. Uh, you, you know the, you put the two economies side by side. And this is something as well documented in the civil world uh, literature. There's no comparison. Like the the North has an extensive railroad network. They have uh, massive factories that are able to uh, convert very rapidly over into armaments and equipment for the military. Uh, They are clearly the uh, superior industrial uh, power at this point. And this is without the South as part of that economy. Southern states lag in railroads, they lag in industry, they, uh, they have to import quite a few of their armaments from abroad, which ends up being smuggled across a blockade. Um, only a few southern cities like Richmond even had a significant industrial base to, uh, uh, to to field the equipment that was necessary for the armies. So the war itself becomes basically a repudiation of the notion that the cotton is this uh, this central uh, dominant, uh, almost overarching hegemon within the uh, the American economy, rather uh, what existed prior to the Civil War, was a very diverse, growing, and uh, rapidly expanding economy with a northern industrial base that actually takes off after the Civil War. That has uh, uh, you know massive amounts of economic expansion in the uh, the latter half of the nineteenth century, early twentieth century, and really that's what's the uh, Uh, the the driver of American economic growth over that period, not this this antiquated uh, cotton production system tied to this horrific institution of slavery.
0: I think when it comes to the abolition of slavery, a lot of people, either rightly or wrongly, want to chalk up the abolition of slavery to moral progress. People came to their senses, we changed minds, you reached some sort of critical mass in society, and all of a sudden attitudes and voting and all these sorts of changes. I'm wondering, though, if you think that's a, a good explanation of the abolition of slavery or if maybe as if in many cases, it really comes down to things like economics.
1: I think it's actually a, a multifaceted process of both of those things uh, we, we see over the period of about 75 or 80 years or so, uh so. Uh, most historians will date the origins of the at least the modern abolition movement uh, to it's around the, the, the 1770s and 1780s uh, in Britain. And it really kind of comes out of uh, a couple of religious movements come together, uh, as well as some uh, freed or escaped slaves that uh, basically become activists uh, against the institution, first attacking the slave trade. So uh from about the 1770s to 1808 there's a sustained campaign against the slave trade that is actually very successful. It's a slow campaign takes place over about 30 to 40 years but by 1808 uh Britain's opinion has turned against uh the slave trade to the point that they're willing to abolish it. That is absolutely a a, a product of moral campaigning, raising awareness. Uh, drawing attention to the horrors of the institution, and that legacy transmits across the Atlantic. You see people replicating that strategy in the United States. Uh, That's uh, William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass, all the uh, famous abolitionists that we know of. uh, One of their most effective tools was to call attention to the horror of the institution. Uh, So that's absolutely there as an undercurrent, and that's continuing through the Civil War. Now, the war itself opens up all sorts of political uncertainties, which is uh, uh, one of the great interesting uh, uh, dimensions of Abraham Lincoln's legacy is he's kind of a policy entrepreneur in a sense. He's an anti-slavery guy, but he's an anti-slavery moderate. Uh, He doesn't want to uh, declare abolition. He doesn't come into office uh, advocating like John Brown or, or William Lloyd Garrison style immediate ends to slavery, uh, he's an anti-slavery pragmatist that wants to limit the, uh, the growth of the institution. And prior to the Civil War, he's saying that, uh, you know, if we, if we stop its expansion into the territories, uh, maybe take away some of the, uh, the subsidies and support this institution derives from the government, then maybe within the course of, uh, of several decades to, to even 100 years from now, we can slowly wean ourselves off of the system. Uh, we can be rid of it. But the war circumstances, of course, as we know famously, throw that into uh, uh, to great uncertainty and chaos. So there's one point very late in the Civil War, Lincoln is talking to uh, Sojourner Truth, who's the African-American abolitionist, and he basically says to her that uh, the only reason he was able to act against slavery is because the circumstances of the war permitted it. Uh, he basically says, if our Southern friends, and he referred to them jokingly as friends, even though they're at odds with the... Uh, armies on the field. If our Southern friends had behaved themselves, I would, have been, uh, I would not have been able to do anything at all against this institution. Uh, but the fact that the, uh, the war played out as it did allowed him to become a much more bold uh, mover against uh, slavery than otherwise would have been the case.
0: I wonder if some people naively think that slavery would be a good model for economic prosperity. I mean, on the one hand, other than feeding clothing and housing slaves, In a sense, you get free labor, you're not paying them. But I'm wondering if you you have any thoughts on why slavery actually wouldn't be a very good recipe for economic prosperity.
1: Right, right. So uh, there are basically three classical dimensions of the argument against slavery uh, that involve economic elements of them. Uh, The first is the the most known one, and that's the moral case here. Uh, It's the moral notion of self-ownership and self-determination. Uh, that, uh, you know, I own myself, every individual owns themselves, and uh, it's a violation of, uh, of basic rights to enslave someone. It, it takes their agency away from what they want to do with their lives. So that's uh, but but that's that's the classical abolitionist case against slavery. There are two other lesser uh, developed cases that were very prominent historically, but we don't talk about as much today. And that is the straight up economic case, and then what I call the political economy or uh, or public choice case against slavery. Uh, So the straight up economic case, and this was delineated by Adam Smith in 1776 in his famous book, The Wealth of Nations, is that slavery has comparative inefficiencies against free labor. Uh, Basically, slavery takes away the incentives that come with uh, uh, the process of offering your labor up for sale. Uh, Another way to think of it, and this is uh, drawn on an analogy that Smith uses, he says, think of yourself as a a worker in a factory or a worker in a company. Uh, One of the things you are constantly trying to do is to get a promotion or to innovate the process on on, on uh, how you do your work to prove to someone that you are deserving of more pay, uh, deserving of better compensation. And what do you do? That includes both formal things like you train yourself, you, uh, you invest extra time in improving whatever your skill happens to be, uh, but also things you do on the job. You, you start to innovate and figure out new uh, and previously unseen ways to do your task better. When there's compensation involved, there's a very high incentive to do this. And most people today uh, in the workforce basically follow that pursuit. Uh, We're always constantly trying to better ourselves and get the raise. Uh, Now compare that to a a slave plantation system. What does the slave have to do? What's your incentive as a slave to improve your product or to innovate a new way to to better cultivate the fields? Uh, There's basically nothing at all. And in fact, uh, quite the opposite of it your, your, your main motivator to be out there working is that if you don't you're going to get beaten and brutalized and harmed and, uh, and tortured effectively. So uh, it's, a, it's a very depressing incentive compared to what uh, Adam Smith would say in the, in the economic free labor model, you have a, uh, an incentive towards self-improvement that's not there uh, under the plantation system. So that's the economic argument. And then the, uh, the third one that I mentioned, you got moral, economic, and then political economy, Political economy refers to basically the corrupting presence of slavery uh, on the overall political system. And Smith notes this as well, but so do a succession of thinkers up until the Civil War, mostly in the abolition movement. They note that, the, that slavery tends to corrupt our politics. Why? Because the people that are invested in plantations, the owners of these, uh, these horrific institutions, also have a tendency to run for public office. They also have a tendency to get themselves elected to Congress, to get themselves involved in in deep political institutions. And what do they do when they get there? What do they do when they assume office? Well, they start to vote themselves money and resources out of the public treasury. Uh, They start to say, well, we're going to devote millions of dollars to building a network of forts across the southern states that also hold military garrisons that are very useful for putting down a slave revolt. They say, we're going to uh, devote the resources of the federal government to funding and financing slave patrols to return fugitives to the South. Uh, They're going to say, we're gonna use the resources of the post office to censor the mails and prevent abolitionist literature uh, from going to parts of the country that we don't want. These are massive expenses that are carried out in law and what this happens to do is it creates a distortive effect on public resources and reallocates them towards the provision and sustenance and subsidy of the slave plantation system. So it becomes economically a draw, uh, not only in its efficiency levels and its, uh, uh, its moral problems, it becomes economically a draw on the revenue basis, the tax basis of the U.S. government.
0: It sounded like when you were talking about the third argument, the the, um, public choice argument, you were alluding to, among other things, rent-seeking. Absolutely. But isn't rent-seeking a problem with regard to um, markets and corporations, too?
1: Absolutely. It absolutely is. And uh, one way to think of this is uh, the plantation operates as an interest group entity, similar to uh, what we would see in uh whether an industry trade group or a corporation or a labor group or ba- basically any special interest today think of the plantation system as like this really evil horrific special interest in its own time it had concentrated benefits it could get out of these uh, these policies it got from the government like uh, fugitive slave enforcement uh, military subsidy police subsidy uh, but it also had a disproportionate element of, um, of influence on the federal government. Now, if you go back contemporaneously to um, of the slave system, yes, there's rent seeking taking place across all the industries of the north. The railroads famously convinced the federal government to give them cheap or free land, <coughs> especially in the western states as an incentive to expand. Uh, there are many textile mills and factories in New England and uh, all up in and down the Northeast, that seek preferential trade uh, uh, treatment through uh, tariffs and other laws uh, governing their products and trying to penalize their competitors. So, rent seeking is abundant, it's everywhere at that point in history. Uh, but we, we, we tend to associate it more with corporate lobbying today and, uh, and, and in most of our, um, our, our narrative of how rent-seeking operates. What I'm arguing for, though, is if we treat the plantation owners themselves as yet another dimension of this rent-seeking type of an interest, uh, you get a fuller picture of what was going on there. And it turns out to be uh, just as pernicious in its political effects but also carries a much heavier moral baggage because it's involving uh, uh, the physical enslavement.
0: So I wanted to switch gears a little bit. Uh, I know you've done work on uh, Abraham Lincoln, and I think many people have the view, sort of naively, if you ask someone on the streets, if they knew anything about Abraham Lincoln, it'd be he, he freed the slaves. Right. And I think people take the outcome to be indicative of the intention. So he freed the slaves. That must have been his intention from the get-go. Is that wrong, or is it much more complicated than that?
1: Yes, it's uh, more complicated than that. Uh, you know, As I mentioned, Lincoln... Had always been an anti slavery guy in his sentiments. He, uh, his earliest records that we have of him from uh, the 1830s and 1840s as a uh, legislator in Illinois, he does express anti slavery sentiments. He views the institution as evil, as wrong, as morally corrupting, but he's not ready, he's not like a fire breathing abolitionist. He's not John Brown wanting to arm the slaves and have a forcible overthrow of the South. Just so it happens, the war facilitates those kind of circumstances that there is a violent end to slavery, but Lincoln himself is of a uh, political moderate anti-slavery viewpoint that's associated mostly with the Whig party that existed before the Civil War. So Lincoln, before he's a Republican, is a member of the Whig party, uh, and he's actually the follower, um, his um, his kind of ideal statesman that he he keeps going to early in his political career as his model for what a good government should be based around is Henry Clay, the senator from Kentucky who uh, who runs several times for president. He's the Whig Party's nominee for president Lincoln Campaigns Forum, uh, but it's also kind of an intellectual heavyweight of the uh, United States Senate. And Clay, interestingly enough, he's from Kentucky. He's a slave owner himself, but he's a moderate anti-slavery slave owner, one of the uh, plantation owners that views this institution as corrupting and evil and wants to get rid of it, but get rid of it gradually. He says, uh, Clay basically argues that it would be too disruptive to declare all the slaves are free tomorrow, but we can wean ourselves off of the institution over time by taking a series of steps. Uh, so what Lincoln does early on in his career is he adopts something uh, historians refer to as the Whig formula for, uh, for dealing with the problem of slavery. And that is you start to pair a bunch of policy steps uh, that are designed to incentivize gradual abolition, and that can include everything from paying the slave owners themselves to, uh, to basically free their slaves, to compensate them in return over time, to have very s- slow and steady, but uh, successful phased-in plans that eliminate the institution over a period of several decades. Uh, and you can do this in different ways by, uh, uh, so for example, you could declare that uh, slaves, when they reach a certain age or reach an age of majority, uh, obtained their freedom. Quite a few of the northern states even actually adopted policies like this uh, to eliminate their slave system between the American Revolution and the Civil War. Uh, so it's a very slow, gradual type of an approach, and Lincoln's very much this mindset. And then also paired to it, he wants uh, um, an institution associated with it to come into place, and that is uh, the act of a uh, voluntary repatriation or colonization of the slaves abroad. So after they're free, after they're manumitted, often with public subsidy or incentive, uh, the government also takes up the bill to offer them passage and possibly new land, uh, either going back to Africa. So the famous experiment with that is Liberia. The modern nation of Liberia comes from an old colony that uh, both uh, former slaves and former slave owners in the United States set up. Uh, prior to the Civil War, and then Lincoln also sees that uh, the Caribbean is a lot closer uh, in terms of a, a voyage than a, a sailing across the Atlantic to, uh, to Liberia, so he spends a good part of his administration looking for land around places uh, such as Panama, Belize, uh, the northern coast of South America, the Guyanas and Suriname, uh, and then also the Caribbean islands as possible sites for a freed slave colony. Uh, Somewhere that you could repatriate uh, or relocate uh, freed African Americans to after the Civil War. And and this comes part of his policy because he knows that, uh, you know, you end this institution, it still has lingering social effects including uh, a likelihood that freed slaves are going to be viewed as the bottom rung of Southern society. They're going to be discriminated against. They're probably going to be persecuted uh, in some cases, violently. So, so uh, Lincoln's solution to that as well, uh, we, we, we relocate them abroad where they uh, can kind of have a land of their own. It's also within the sphere of the United States influence, but it's, it, it's not, um, that's not something that's operating under the southern political system that we have. Uh, so what colonization becomes is a, a moderate's attempt to uh, execute this strategy of weaning the United States economy uh, and the United States political system away from the elements of it that were dependent on slavery. And Lincoln's very much of that mindset when he goes into his presidency. Uh, carries it out probably through the majority of his presidency, trying to advance this this Whig formula of slow, gradual, compensated emancipation uh, tied to uh, subsidized colonization abroad. Uh, The Civil War, of course, creates all sorts of new circumstances, the most famous being the Emancipation Proclamation, which is a very sudden, sharp military order intended to advance the northern cause by freeing the southern slaves. Uh, but it's, uh, it's more a circumstance of the war that creates that rather than a, uh, an underlying philosophical drive, as Lincoln was secretly trying to aim for that all along, some historians have tried to argue. Uh, but uh, I think the weight of the evidence shows that he's responding to the circumstances more than, uh, than this like, overarching uh, philosophical plan that uh, would have been executed or something to, uh, to bring about abolitionism.
0: I have a couple follow-up questions suppose the federal government decided to buy slaves from slave owners uh, as a way of sort of gradual emancipation. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the incentive structure of such a policy. I mean, in the background, my, my, my thinking is something like, well, if I was a slave owner, right, and the federal government was going to buy my slaves, that seems like it gives me an incentive to acquire more slaves and just continue to sell them. Yeah. The was that thought of as an issue, and how was it dealt with if it was?
1: Yeah, so, so their, uh, their absolute awareness of, uh, of potential perverse incentives that could be associated with this policy. Uh, the one thing that they have to go on is the British government basically followed the compensated emancipation model um, in the early 1830s when it freed the slaves of its colonies. Um, it is morally fraught. I mean, you, you have to ask the question, Is like, should we be paying slave owners uh, to do something which they should have done on their own, which is free their slaves? But as a, pra- a point of practical politics, it did get the job done. It did end the institution of slavery. Uh, so, so what people are thinking by the, uh, uh, the, the time of the Civil War and Lincoln among them is that to execute compensated emancipation, it has to be uh, uh, very spec- uh, specified in time. It has to be executed on almost a state-by-state basis. Uh, so he spends quite a bit of the early years of the Civil War trying to give, convince the, uh, the slave-holding states that remained in the Union. So this is Missouri, Delaware, Maryland, uh, the parts of Virginia that break away and become uh, West Virginia today. Uh, those are all slave regions, but they stay on the northern side of the Civil War. And what Lincoln tries to do is to convince those states to individually impose compensated emancipation within their borders. And you do it on a state-by-state basis uh, as a way to kind of geographically manage uh, the rollout of this this process. Uh, He actually does get one through that that is um, a, a successful but very small example of this compensated emancipation colonization model. And that is in 1862, they free the slaves of the District of Columbia. Uh, so, and this takes an act of Congress because it's it's governed differently than uh, than say like state constitutions. But uh, in in early eighteen sixty two, they free the slaves of the District of Columbia, offer compensation to the slave owners, and offer payment to resettle any slaves that want to leave uh, abroad, either passage to Liberia or somewhere in uh, in South America or the Caribbean. Uh, so this is actually a, um, a an early experiment in it. Uh, what they do find, there are instances of people, uh, actually more so the bigger problem was moving their slaves across the uh, uh, the border from D.C. into Maryland. Uh, so they're right next to each other, and, and you found slave owners that had residences in both. Uh, so there are some instances of that. It also opens the question is, uh, can you continue the enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act in the District of Columbia when it is officially free now? Uh, vis-a-vis Maryland, which is uh, still operating under a slave system. Uh, So there there ends up being all sorts of political battles that play out um, after that that are not always fully anticipated. Uh, But I I think it really just demonstrates the the difficulty, the fraughtness of this approach. Uh, What looks very clean from the top down as an abstract concept uh, starts to run into all the complexities that you're hinting at.
0: When you were speaking about uh, finding uh, like a place in the Caribbean for newly freed slaves, it really reminded me of um, learning about a guy named Marcus Garvey, yeah. who, like the 1920s had a Back to exactly. Africa movement. And you alluded to some of the reasons, right? I mean, you may think in some sense there there's something a bit callous about just picking up a bunch of newly freed slaves and relocating them. Yeah. Uh, but there's also the context. You know, you don't want a bunch of slaves who are or newly freed slaves uh, being treated as basically second-class or, or last-class citizens. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how far those plans went to relocate um, newly freed slaves. Like, did, did the federal government actually purchase land? Like, how far did these plans go?
1: Yeah, so it's a, um, it's a fascinating policy history here. And I, I wrote a, an entire book on this subject and have done quite a bit of, um, of scholarly work on trying to trace what the federal government did to try and find freedmen settlements abroad during the Civil War. And uh, first off, they are aware of, uh, of the problem of discrimination in the South. This is probably one of the biggest motivators behind Lincoln's interest in this policy. Uh, there are several points throughout his presidency where he basically says that he's worried about the future of the United States in the South in a post-slavery society, not because of the slaves themselves, but because what their white former owners are probably going to do to them as they're free. Uh, he's expecting brutalization. He's expecting basically the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and Jim Crow, uh, quite presciently so. Does this mean that his policy follows from that necessarily? No. Um, there are all sorts of problems with colonization, but at least that's the, the underlying motive uh, behind why Lincoln's interested in this. It's actually shared by several African Americans. You alluded to, uh, uh, to Marcus Garvey. So there's a, a couple of generations prior to Garvey, uh, who's you know famously associated with Back to Africa, where he also dabbles in, in going to Jamaica, uh, looking for a black homeland abroad. But uh, uh, prior to Garvey and some of his precursors, his intellectual forebearers, are African-American abolitionists at the time of the Civil War. Uh, one of which is a, uh, a pastor in New York City by the name of Henry Highland Garnett. Uh, who's famous as a a very fiery African-American abolitionist prior to the war. He's a pamphleteer and gives uh, orations calling for the immediate end of slavery, calling for slave revolts. A fairly well-known guy, may have been probably the second or third most famous African-American abolitionist after Frederick Douglass in the country. But uh, Henry Highland Garnett, during the Civil War, is both an eyewitness and victim to an event in 1863 uh, referred to as the New York Draft Riots. If, uh, if you've seen the movie Gangs of New York, the final act of that is is a uh, like a dramatization of the draft riots uh, that broke out in New York City. And one of the elements that's not fully revealed in the, f- in the film, but uh, is probably more pressing policy-wise uh, from the draft riots, is the mobs, as they're ra- ravaging through the city, uh, they start to turn their ire against the free African-American population of New York. And Garnett is the leader of the free African-American population through his congregation. Uh, so what they do, they, they move to the black districts of the city and they start burning down houses. Uh, they lynched people in the streets, just a horrific event. And this turns someone like Garnett to start asking questions Says, well. Is this what our future is going to look like? on a much wider scale when uh, freedom is brought across the South. Are African-Americans going to be treated this way? So he starts asking the question, what do we do if we go abroad? And there's, there's some uh, back and forth between Garnett and the Lincoln administration to actually try and find a location. What do they do during the Civil War? Well, Lincoln uh, launches a, uh, basically a call for proposals across the world. He reaches out to independent nations in the Caribbean, such as Haiti, which he establishes diplomatic relations with. Liberia, he's dealing with the government of Liberia as the existing slave colony, but he also reaches out to the British Empire and the Dutch Empire, Uh, he reaches out to Denmark, all of these uh, countries in Europe that had islands in the Caribbean or or countries along uh, the South American and Central American coasts. He reaches out to Colombia, some of the South American states, and asks them and says, hey, do you have any land? that's available, that we can populate. So between him taking office in 1861 and through at least about 1864, there's just a succession of attempts to find a suitable freedman's colony across the world. Uh, The ones that become most advanced, well first they attempt uh, to acquire land on the Isthmus of Panama from Colombia, although the deal falters because there's a political dispute about where the boundary existed, uh, there was actually a revolution in Colombia that had two competing governments, so they didn't know who they were dealing with. Uh, they moved from that. Uh, they actually launched a uh, an expedition for a single colony in Haiti where they uh, they shipped uh, about 500 recently freed African-Americans to a little island up the southern coast of Haiti that was supposed to be set up as a colony. Uh, that lasted for about a year. Uh, with U.S. government funding, but uh, it collapsed into chaos through a series of missteps. Uh, so the resupply ships got into a dispute with the person that was contracted to do it and never arrived. Uh, There's a smallpox uh, pandemic that broke out uh, on board the ship and then uh, carried forward to the island. So uh, uh, basically the whole thing ended in disaster and the Navy had to come in a year, a year later and rescue the, uh, uh, the freed slaves and return them to the United States. Uh, so there was that attempt, and then the probably the most uh, uh, advanced in terms of late stage attempts. Uh, this is the main area that I've been working and discovered was Lincoln uh, reached arrangements with the governments of uh, Great Britain and the Netherlands to use their Caribbean colonies uh, as potential locales that they could relocate uh, freed slaves to, and this was done through uh, agreements where they'd sign. Uh, a partnership basically with the colonial government of places like Belize or British Honduras, as it was known at the time, Suriname, Guyana, uh, some talk about Jamaica, some of the different islands in the Caribbean. And they say (coughs) that they'd offer those governments, uh, we'll we'll give you preferential treatment to migrate freed slaves from the United States into your land. And you can put them to work, uh, Basically, these are labor-starved economies that have uh, so a real shortage in manpower but heavy agricultural uh, potential because they're in the tropics. And the idea was that you could set up communities that, uh, uh, that do various things like growing crops that are suited for the tropics. Uh, uh, there's a lot of wood harvesting and sugar harvesting that's, uh, that's seen as a potential for Central America. Uh, so there's a whole economic plan behind it. Uh, All of this comes crashing down through a series of events in 1864 and 1865, Uh, the main story being that uh, Congress withdraws the funding for the colonization ventures in July of 1864. This comes about because of a political dispute. There's corruption that's exposed, in some of the uh, officials that were involved in it, including a... uh, Uh, Some evidence that there was a U.S. senator that absconded with tens of thousands of dollars that had been uh, allocated to uh, to colonization. So during the inquiry, Congress puts a halt on the funding. And then over the uh, the remaining year or so of the Lincoln administration, uh, it's just tied up in political battles of whether we can, uh, whether they could even uh, resume the funding. Uh, Meanwhile, the war is raging. So it kind of gets sidelined, at least until the end of the war. Uh, what happens in Lincoln's mind. We don't know for certain, but there's evidence that he was probably trying to revive this in his second term, which of course is cut off by the assassination.
0: I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the most plausible argument. So you have a lot of views. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you can give us uh, the most plausible argument you know of, of a, against a view you hold and why you disagree with the argument ultimately.
1: Sure, sure. So uh, I mean, let's return to the new history of capitalism literature, this notion that that slavery is the dominant player in the American economy prior to the Civil War. Uh, Statistically, we know that's not true. Statistically, we know it's a much smaller percentage of economic activity than what they assign. But but let's suppose the counterfactual that it was the case that 50% of economic activity was tied to cotton production. And it's plausible to see this type of a uh, situation occurring not in the United States, but maybe some of the smaller Caribbean colonies that were previously slave colonies. Uh, so somewhere like Jamaica or Barbados, during the period that slavery existed there, these are very heavily uh, plantation agriculture dominated uh, colonies where they basically produce one product or, or maybe a small suite of products that are all tied to the plantation system. So I think in that type of a circumstance, uh, you actually do get to a point where there is more of a viable argument that slavery is the central economic player in those colonies, in those locales. Uh, as opposed to the United States. The U.S., of course, being a much larger uh, country and a much larger and more diversified region uh, with a um, a multifaceted economy doesn't fit that descriptive characteristic. But I think that argument that slavery has this huge distortive economic effect, while it doesn't work in the United States, it could potentially explain, in fact, does explain, uh, some of the colonial economies in much more smaller, um, isolated uh, homogenous and uh, and you know, single industry or single sector uh, um, areas of economic production that we saw in the Caribbean and other parts of the world during the uh, the period slavery existed.
0: Uh, switching gears a bit for my final question, can you tell us about a time that you failed and what you learned? About, what you learned from that failure?
1: Yeah, so uh, you go kind of philosophically in this direction. Part of this comes from my own uh, initial idea of. Uh, uh, pursuing like a career in ideas, a, a career in, in, in working in historical scholarship. If you would have asked me 15 years ago when I kind of um, was re- really at the early stages of launching this type of a career, uh, I would have envisioned myself, you know, following probably a, a, a very traditional academic route, uh, working in abstract ideas and, and scholarly exchange at a very high-end professional level, uh, which, which I think most academics aspire to do, in publishing in journals, publishing quality books with uh, with academic presses. At least this is the idealized version of the academic life. I, I really kind of bought into what I would call a mythology uh, around that at the time, and thought, oh well, uh, yeah, maybe I have some ideas that are uh, that run against the grain about uh, against what so- certain other scholars are saying. I'm I'm often in a minority position on some of the things that I argue for, even though I think that the um, uh, I offer a, a decent amount of evidence of of why that position is more defensible. I thought this was something that was part of the scholarly exchange that would be uh, open to free debate and, and, and ideas in academic settings. And I think what I learned over over the next decade or so of working in this arena was that um, intellectual exchange is a much more epistemically closed system in the academy uh, than I ever thought it was. Uh, We have various echo chambers that emerge around dominant or consensus viewpoints, one of which being... uh, Self-contained in this new history of capitalism literature that I talked about, you know, that's one among uh, dozens of different examples in the academy today. And I think what this does is, unfortunately, it um, it casts a shadow over the ideal of the intellectual life, the academic career. So what this meant for me personally was a uh, a period of uh, of coming to terms with and realizing that the ideal I had uh, I had held for academic life very early on, uh, when I was just entering into it, uh, often did not play out that way in reality. In fact, you you found uh, uh, some very anti-intellectual types of instincts that are at play in the academy. You also found, and this is stuff I hinted in, in uh, my other book, Cracks in the Ivory Tower, that uh, people that claim to be motivi- motivated by the pursuit of knowledge are actually motivated by a desire to uh, to get a secure job and uh, to extract as much as they can out of the higher ed system, uh, whether or not they're actually providing knowledge. Uh, so some of the baser instincts of academics don't align with the ideals that they put forth. And i, I say just over the, uh, the decade or so of coming to terms with that was really upending to my worldview based on what I thought I should be expecting uh, versus what reality was. Uh, what did that do in terms of, uh, of career? Well, it, uh, it caused me to change course several times I'd say about a decade ago, I thought that this was something that I could, uh, you know, put effort toward correcting, trying to write the course, uh, make the academy a, a better, more intellectual uh, place in the sense that open exchange occurred. But over trial and error and many, many years of, uh, of fighting it out in that world, it just became increasingly evident that uh, both the ideological and uh, and personal skews of the academy were not lined up in terms of their incentive structure to really yield that type of result. So uh, uh, my own career kind of shifted from the strategy of trying to work within to, uh, well, let's just do my own good scholarship. Let's just uh, bring my arguments to bear and put them out there and, and and kind of force the hand of people that are unwilling to uh, to confront some of the issues that I've raised, to confront the evidence that i put forth. Uh, so that's been a, a, a real, alteration of strategy in the way that I've pursued research, the way that I've thought of my career, the way that uh, um, I I think intellectual life seems to be playing out in the United States, uh, uh, as well as globally in terms of of scholarly exchange.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Phil Magnus, Senior Research Fellow at American Institute for Economic Research and author of the recent book, The 1619 Project, A Critique. Phil, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.